Good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you will take your Bibles, we come to that time when we open God's Word and look to see what His thoughts are. And we want to spend some time once again in John chapter 10. If you still are looking at a pew Bible, that's page 1072. Uh, You will want to have the Scripture in front of you as we go through this sermon by Jesus. Jesus is speaking Uh, in this passage, and he says some things that are very, very powerful and maybe things that you have never heard before, and you will want to see them on the pages of Scripture. He, in this passage, the key verse in John 10 is verse 11, where he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. That's sort of the key of the whole section the main verse of the whole section, speaking almost in a defiant tone to the false shepherds of chapter 8 and 9. Just forget the the paragraph break or the chapter break there in John 10 and realize this is all one scene. Little mini scenes going on, but Jesus is still speaking to those religious leaders of Israel. And in the eyes of most people, those religious leaders would have been the shepherds of Israel. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Those guys are not good, but I'm the good shepherd. And he makes that statement, and I'm sure he ruffled a lot of feathers when he said that, and uh, especially among the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were there. But uh, their bad shepherding is highlighted at the end of chapter 9 in the way they treat the blind man, the man who was healed of his blindness by Jesus. They kick him out of the synagogue because he spoke favorable things about the man who healed him, the Lord Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, it's very comforting to read, I am the good shepherd, but it's also, you understand, it's said in the parallel to condemning words that he is speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. The false shepherds, the hirelings, the thieves, the robbers, those are some of the things he calls them in John chapter 10. I told you last week, and this is really the setting for today, last week in John chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 10, our passage today is 11 through 21, but in John 1 through 10, he sort of sets the scene for us somewhat. You will remember uh, what we said in that beginning in verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs in some other way as a thief and a robber. Sheep were taken by the shepherds at night to a fold in the city for protection. Lots of different little sheep herds within the fold. The next day, the shepherd of those sheep would come and get his sheep. And we're told in verse 3, he would call them. And he had a special way he called them. You see in verse 3, the sheep would hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, may have had names for him. And his sheep would come out of the fold. This is like an enclosure. And there's only one way in, one way out. And those sheep would listen for their shepherd to come that next day to get them. This is a, a, we're told in verse 6, this is a figure of speech. This is an allegory that is being taught here uh, about uh, salvation. About salvation. In fact, everything we're looking at pretty much in these first 21 verses is about salvation. And you see what he says in verse 3. He says, uh, my sheep, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And so I told you he's not teaching us about 
how to herd sheep. He's teaching us here about salvation, and he's teaching us this. His sheep hear his voice. His sheep he calls out by name. If your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, your name in that book, Revelation 13.7 or 13.8, he calls your name. At some point in your life, he calls you by name. That's salvation. The calling, the effectual call of God where he calls out those who belong to him, his sheep, his sheep. Look at verse 29 of chapter 10. John 10, 29. My father who has given them to me. If you were given to the son before the foundation of the world, you are his sheep and he will call you. At some point, he will call you. You're chosen, elected, and you're given to the Son to be His flock. That is what that section is teaching us. We are His people, and He calls His people. He calls His sheep. The other sheep hear Him calling, but they don't respond because they're not His They're waiting for whoever to call them. But his sheep, Jesus' sheep, hear his voice. They may hear it, others may hear it audibly, but they don't respond. Because it's not an effectual call for them. It's only an effectual call for those who belong to Christ. That sheepfold, by the way, that sheepfold represents Israel. It represents apostate Israel. It represents Judaism. And within Judaism, Jesus is saying, I have my sheep and I call them. Example, the blind man called out of Judaism, called to Christ and believed in Christ. We saw that at the end of chapter 9. I called him, he came because he was my sheep. He was one of my sheep. They raise their head, and when they hear his voice, and they go, I need to respond. I need to go. My shepherd's calling me. Verse 5 of John 10 says, A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. This is a figure of speech, and the Pharisees didn't understand it. Of course they did not understand it. They were not his sheep. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. He changes the metaphor. We talked about this at the end of our time last week. I am the door of the sheep. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He, he calls them out to go through that door. And he's the door. And he's the way. And it's a narrow way. It's not the broad way of Matthew 7. It's the narrow way. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's the Lord Jesus Christ in him alone, and faith in him alone. It's, it's not anything you do. It's not the works righteous system of Judaism or Catholicism or any of these other isms out there. It is Jesus Christ alone. Faith in him is the way, notice verse 9, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And we'll go in 
and out and find pasture. He will go and find still waters. He will go and find green pastures. He will go and find, we see in verse 10, abundant life. You see that? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. A life that has meaning, a life that has purpose, a life that's right with God, a life that has access into the presence of God, a life that has forgiveness for your sin, past, present, and future, a life that has the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, God with you all the time, sealed by the Spirit of God, destined for heaven, eternal life, not just in the future, but now, life now, abundant life. Tremendous promise to the Christian. Tremendous promise to the Christian that we can have a life that's full of grace and joy and peace and comfort and security. That is the promise that he makes to a Christian. It saddens me when I hear Christians say, I don't know that life. I've been a Christian a long time. I don't know that life. I don't know what you're talking about, that life. It's life is not so, quote, abundant. Listen, we're not talking about material prosperity. Prosperity preachers have jumped all over this verse and said it's material prosperity, name it and claim it, whatever you want. You're a God. You can get whatever you want. That kind of teaching is not what this is about. That's false teaching. This kind of teaching is you will have, you will have spiritual blessing, spiritual riches You will have the promise that when you go through a trial, it will have meaning to it. It will have a purpose in it. It will not just be some random act. It will have a reason for because all things work together for those who love God and called according to his purpose. You have those kinds of promises in this abundant life. It saddens me when Christians say, I've been a Christian all these years and I don't know that abundant life. I don't even know what you're talking about. Two possibilities. One, you may not be a Christian. Or the other, you may be a Christian who is in sin. And you need to repent of that. And you need to get rid of the idols in your heart that hinder that life. And you need to go back to your first love. And you need to cry out to him with a repentant heart that, God, I want My life, I want that abundant life. I'm not looking for personal happiness. I'm looking for personal holiness. God, help me in that. Help me to know that kind of life because that's the promise, my friends. That's the promise. It's not an easy life. It's not a problem-free life. That's not what it means. It's life that has meaning and purpose and direction and a sense of satisfaction that I have a right standing before God. Far from perfect, but I know my sin is forgiven, and I stand before a holy God in his righteousness, not my own. That's an abundant life. The false teachers, you see them in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The false shepherds, the false, they just come to fleece the sheep. They just come to use the sheep. They just come to get rich off the the sheep. Jesus says, I came to give you life. I came to lead you into green pastures. I pray you're growing in that and understanding that. I pray you understand that life. I pray you understand that sanctification, that process, and the joy and peace that comes in that. Like I said, it's not always easy. It's very hard at times. Life is filled with difficulties and challenges, but to have, have, be those who grieve with hope. 
We grieve with hope. We're not like those who grieve with no hope. Why is all this possible? Now Jesus gives a little sermon, continues his sermon here, telling us more about why he is the good shepherd. Why are you the good shepherd? Why are you the good shepherd? He begins that in verse 10. I am the good shepherd. Uh, this is, um, and I am the door, and I am the good shepherd. You got seven I am's in the book of John. I've told you about these before. Uh, I am uh, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. You saw that previously. Uh, I am the good shepherd. You see that in this passage. I am the resurrection, the life. You see in um, Chapter 11, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see that in chapter 14. And I am the true vine. You see that in chapter 15. All of those describing to us what Christ is like, all speaking to his deity. And that's exactly how it was heard by the audience that day. Here he is claiming once again to be God. Because their belief was that Ultimately, God was their shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23 says. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, I shall not want. You know how the psalm goes. And that was what their thinking was. I am the good shepherd. Are you claiming to be God? You see it again in Psalm 80. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, speaking to God. Psalm 100, verse 3. Uh, he, we are the sheep of his pasture. Isaiah 40, 11, like a shepherd, he, God, will tend his flock. He's making all these statements, once again, speaking to his deity. I tell you, the book of John is filled with so many statements about the deity of Christ. There's no mistaking who Jesus was and claimed to be in the book of John. Look at verse 33 of chapter 10, John 10, verse 33, the Jews answered him he says for a good work we are not we do not stone you but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself out to be god that is the tension that is one of the reasons they want to get rid of him the word good is the word kalos. It's the, it's the idea of somewhat moral good, but it goes, it's bigger than that. When he says, I am the good shepherd, it's more the idea that I'm the noble, excellent, um, beautiful, superior shepherd in person and in character. And so then he gives you three things, three things about why he is the good shepherd. First, notice in verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's sacrificial. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Any shepherd of sheep would be one who would stand between danger and the sheep. Remember David said, David who was a shepherd, uh, a young, as a young shepherd, he said, I fought with bears and lions, or a bear and a lion. Shepherds did that in protecting the sheep. That was what they were known for, willing in some cases to even die for the sheep. The shepherd was willing to do that. A hired hand, as we'll see in the next verse, a hired hand would never do this. All the hired hand wants is his paycheck. He doesn't care about the sheep. He's not sheep-focused. He's, he's, he's hireling-focused, not sheep-focused. 
Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what this table's about today, right? We're remembering that. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what, we're that's, that's what the communion table reminds us of. He lays down his life. He, he, uh, you see it in verse, look down at verse uh, 11. Excuse me, verse 15, he says it again. I lay down my life for the sheep, the end of the verse. You see it in verse 17. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. You see it in verse 18. Uh, I lay down, in the middle of the verse, I lay down I don't, on my own initiative. And then you see it, I have authority to lay it down. I lay down my life. Interesting, the see that it was a voluntarily he did that voluntarily that's what's important nobody took it Uh, his blood was not spilt his blood was poured out his blood was poured out Uh, Jesus did not say hey I'm finished no he says it is finished it is finished he gave his life for the sheep. Boyce in his commentary points out that it may be a tragedy for a 33 year old to, to die it certainly would be But it's not a tragedy for this 33-year-old to die. This was not a tragedy. This was not a tragedy. It was voluntarily done. It was planned. It was before the foundation of the world. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 2. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Understand that. This, he was no victim. He voluntarily laid down his life. The reason Joseph was told to name him Jesus, remember in Matthew one twenty one, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what his name means, Savior. That's why he came, to save. He'll be a Savior. Amen. And notice he did not die for his own sins. It says for the sheep. The word, it's a, it's a preposition. A lot of theology hangs on little words. And this is an important word. This speaks of the vicarious death of Christ. He died in place of the sheep. He died for them. Not, not for his own sin. He had no sin. He died for their sin. In place of the sheep. He died, Romans 5. He died for the ungodly. He died for the, uh, for, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is an important word, for us, in place of. He died in place of sinners. He died in place of us. He died in place of the sheep. It's very important. Liberals hate this. Liberals hate to talk like this. They think it's cosmic child abuse to say, the father would kill the son. But he did. He did because it was done for the sheep. It was done to save the sheep. It was done to, to bring the sheep to salvation. It was the only way. Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Very important. And I'll tell you something else that's important about this verse. This verse speaks specifically to who he died for. This verse tells you he died for the sheep. 
He died for the sheep. Who are the sheep? They are the ones he called out of the fold in verse 3. They are the ones we're going to see called out of the fold in verse 16. The fold, the ones that he calls, those are his sheep. They are the ones that we're told here in in this verse 11 that he lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, his death on the cross was not a potential atonement. His death on the cross was an actual atonement. Understand that terminology. His death on the cross was not an atonement that happened and is not made real until people believe in it. That's not true. To say he just died on, went out there and died on a cross and then hoped that people would come along and believe in him is not the kind of atonement that he went through. His atonement was an actual atonement. It was an atonement with people in mind. It was an atonement with names in mind. It was an atonement with, with the called in mind, those who would be called to salvation. It's an actual, actual atonement. The complete atonement for the sheep whom he knew. Very important and a very difficult Doctrine, I get it. But I think it's so clear there, and it's so clear here in John 10. That's who he has in mind, according to verse 11. He paid in full the penalty for his sheep. Notice verse 29 of chapter 10. My Father, who has given them to me, John 10, 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. His sheep believe. This is just a side note, but notice in that verse 26, the common notion is that people are outside the flock because they don't believe. Jesus says, They do not believe because they don't belong in his flock. You see the difference, what I just said? The reason you don't believe is because you are not of my sheep. You're not in my flock. That's why you don't believe. It's not a matter of you believing to get in there in that verse. It's that you don't believe because you don't belong to me. You were not given to me by the Father. These are hard things. I get it. These are difficult things, but I want you to see they're right there on the pages of Scripture in John chapter 10. This is a definitive statement about the doctrine of election right here in verse 26. You'll see it in verse 15 again when he lays down his life for the sheep. Not like the hired hand of verse 12. He was a hired hand. Verse 12, it says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He doesn't love the sheep. He doesn't care about the sheep. He's not concerned for the sheep. He's just there to get. He's not there to give. Verse 13, he flees because he has a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. That's what he's saying about the religious leaders of Israel. They are in it for the wrong reasons. They are more focused on themselves and not on the sheep. I, I, I died for the sheep. I gave my life for the sheep. 
That's why he's a good shepherd. A bad shepherd will not die for sheep. A bad shepherd will not give his life for the sheep. A bad shepherd will not risk his life. He'll run. He'll run. He'll flee. Secondly, notice it says he loves the sheep in verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. This is, this is we're answering questions. Why are you a good shepherd? Jesus, why is he, Jesus is telling us why he is a good shepherd. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I told you that that statement is about him loving the sheep. The word love does not appear anywhere in verses 14 and 15, but the word know does. I know my own, and my own know me. And the Father knows me, and I know the Father. It's the word gnosko in the Greek. It's the intimate form of the word love. It's the Adam knew Eve type of love. Intimacy and bore son, Cain. It's that kind of love. It's that kind of knowing somebody. It's an intimate love. It's, it speaks of experiential uh, a loving relationship. In the book of Amos, Israel, he says, Israel only have I known. Does that mean that the Jews were the only people he was acquainted with? No. It means they were the ones that he set his love on. That's what it means. Of all the nations, he says, I set my love on them. Israel only have I known. So it's a euphemism for intimacy, for loving the sheep. And he, he knows them more than just knowing their name and who they are. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said this, Depart from me, for I never knew you, speaking to those who said they claimed to know him, but did, really did not. He says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. you. You understand that he knows that person. He knows about that person. That's not what we're talking about. What he's saying is, I never knew you intimately. I never knew you in this intimate way. It may have been in your head. It may have been theoretical. It may have been high platitudes or whatever. But he says, I never had an intimate relationship with you. He says in verse 14, I I think this is interesting. He says, and I know my own and my own know me. Really, the idea is he lo- we love him because he first loved us. He's the one that loved first. I know my own. I love my own. And be- as a response to that, my own love me. That's one of the greatest evidences you're a Christian is that you love God. You love Christ. One of the greatest inf- uh, Evidences that you belong to him is love for him and love for others. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And we respond to the love that he has shown to us by loving him and loving and loving others. The Father knows me and I know the Father. 
he, he loves us the way the Father loves him and the way he loves the Father. You and I are just kind of caught up in this love relationship. I've said this several times now from the book of John. We're just caught up in this love relationship between the Father and the Son. And we're the love gift to the Son from the Father. We've been given to the Son by the Father. When you see the word foreknowledge in the Bible, it it doesn't mean foresight. It doesn't mean foresight. It it means God planned beforehand. It means that... uh, it mean, excuse me. It means that God observed before, beforehand. He pre-thought and he preordained believers in salvation beforehand. He set his love on them beforehand. He loved them before the foundation of the world. That's what we mean by foreknowledge. He did not just know about me. He knew me and set his love on me. That's foreknowledge. God never, had to, God never had to look into eternity to get any information. That's not, that's not what we mean by foreknowledge. That he just knew about something before it happened. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a predetermined love, a predetermined love for, in salvation, for the sheep. Look at Matthew 11 for a moment. Matthew 11, this is just kind of a, Another way to look at this, Matthew 11, verse 25, just to show you that even Jesus uses this kind of language. It wasn't just John, it wasn't just Paul, it wasn't just Peter, but even Jesus uses this kind of language. At that time, verse 25, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. In other words, we would have no knowledge if he did not open our eyes and our ears. You revealed this. You revealed this to infants. The wise and the intelligent, they think they know, but they can't. They think they see, but they don't see. To infants... We would never understand salvation, Jesus is saying, if he does not open, the, uh, open our eyes and give us understanding. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse, 20, verse 26, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Notice this, verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and notice, and anyone to whom the Son wills. To reveal him. They know the saving plan. And for us who are foreknown sheep to share in it requires divine intervention. That's what he's saying. God has to do something in us because we are blind. We can't see. We have to have it revealed to us. It's interesting, the verse that follows this, and if you have your Bible open to Matthew 11, you'll notice is the human side of this, is the human responsibility side of this, come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden. You see that? You've got, you got divine sovereignty in 11 and 25 through 27. You've got human responsibility. Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. An invitation by Jesus It requires divine intervention is the point. 
I need God to do a work in me to open my blind eyes and open my deaf ears. The reason the Pharisees the reason the Pharisees did not believe is because one, they were not in his flock, and two, they could not hear and they could not see. And unless there's divine intervention to open blind eyes and open deaf ears, no one gets saved. No one shares in the salvation plan unless God does that work. Thirdly, go to verse 16. He unites all the sheep. He unites all the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So this is interesting. He is saying to these Jews and these Jewish leaders that, the, that my shepherding is not limited to Israel only. That's what he is saying. I have other sheep. Uh, I have other sheep who have already uh, been given these as well. I have other sheep, they're mine. They've already been given to me as well. And by the Father. And it extends beyond the borders of Israel. It is in another fold. That's what he's saying. The first fold was verse 3, the in Judaism. Now we're talking about another fold where there are other sheep who belong to him as well. And he says in this verse, I must, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Same thing. Same thing for this other, this other, this other group of sheep. These non-Jews. Non-Jews will be brought and made part of, notice, one flock with one shepherd. Turn over to John 11. I guess you're still, are you, where are you? Are you Matthew? Sorry about that. I could have had you, told you to go back to John. Did everybody read John 15, 16? That's an important verse. I had you in Matthew, but John 15, 16. But go to John eleven forty nine. 49. Verse 49. The religious leaders are figuring out what to do with Jesus and all of these things in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, verse 49 of John 11, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, verse 51, 51. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, Israel, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. You see that? In, you don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 11.1, 1, listen to this. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. This is David's line. As a branch from its roots will bear fruit. We'll go to verse 10. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. All the nations will gather around the root of Jesse, will gather around the Messiah. All the nations, not just Israel. I still believe God has a plan for Israel. My eschatology says that. But God has also made salvation possible to the Gentiles. That's what he's saying. It's not just Israel. It's not just Israel. It would include Israel. But it would go beyond Israel. The Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
Here's something interesting. I must bring them, notice verse 16, back to John 10, verse 16. 10, verse 16. Oh, this is great. I must bring them also, notice, and they will hear my voice. I must and they will. I must bring them and they will hear my voice and will become part of that flock. I must, they will, they will be given ears to hear and will become one flock with one shepherd. They will be given ears, they will have their ears open to hear that call that I must bring to them and they will, notice, and they will hear my voice. Look at John, no, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. You understand that? John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. If you have been given to the Father, given to the Son before the foundation of the world, he foreknew you, set his love on you in eternity past, put your name in the Lamb's book of life, then you will be called and you, get this, will come. Will come. The reason, the reason you have to come is not because you're, the reason you have come is not because you're smarter than other people. It is because Jesus said, I must and you will. You follow me on that? That is irresistible grace, my friends. That is irresistible grace right there. I must and you will. Let me read to you Spurgeon. Always good to quote Spurgeon when you don't know what else to say about a hard topic. He says this, You cannot look to Christ before he has looked to you. If you are willing to be saved, he gave you that will. He says, You yourselves say, We won't come. I'm not going to come. God says, you shall come. If you belong to him, if you are of his flock, you will come. That's what he's saying. Yes, there are some here who are laughing at salvation. You can scoff at Christ and mock at the gospel. But I tell you, some of you shall come yet. What, you say? Can God make me become a Christian? I tell you, yes. For, therein, for herein rests the power of the gospel. It does not ask for your consent, but it gets it. Gets your consent. It does not say, will you have it, but it makes you willing in the day of God's power. Doesn't mean he overrides man's will. It means he changes man's will. He changes it. A man is not saved against his will. He is made willing by the operation of the Holy Spirit. A mighty grace which he does not wish to resist enters into the man, disarms him, and makes him a new creature, create, excuse me, a new create creature of him, and he is saved. When God calls sinners to come to him, they will come. <laughs> That's what it says in John 10. That's what it says can't thwart God's will in calling sinners. If you are, if it was, if you were in the book of life before the foundation of the world, you will be called and you will come. All his sheep will come to him.
This is in the mind of God, my friends. I don't see it. I don't know it. I don't, I don't live in that level of things. I just know that it gives me extreme confidence when I preach the gospel that I know God's working. God is working. And even the most resistant person, you don't know, that person may one day melt before the power of God in his life, working in his life. That's what, that's what it gives such boldness in preaching the gospel, even to the fiercest rejectors, that they may one day be humbled by the Spirit of God and brought to salvation. It just knocks the enmity out of their heart. Paul, the Apostle Paul, a greatest example, hated Christians, hated Christianity. There are testimonies of many others. I was not one who you would ever think would become a Christian. I was never one who would... <laughs> Rosario Butterfield, I always listened to her testimony one time, and I was shocked. Here's a teaching women's gender studies at Syracuse University and never once thought about Christians except that she didn't like them and, you know, and their stand against her position on a gay lifestyle and all of that kind of thing. And God humbled her and God brought her to salvation. And now she just writes wonderful books on what God has done in her life and what he has done in salvation. See, if you left it to your will... Nobody would ever consent. If Jesus Christ came into this room this morning and stood up in this pulpit and started preaching to you and said, here I am, come to me, you would not respond. You would not respond unless he did something in your heart first. You can look at these religious people in Israel and see a great example of that. They watched miracle after miracle after miracle. They saw living evidence in front of them and they continually rejected until something was done in their heart. And their eyes were opened. This, this makes us very dependent on God in evangelism, for we know it's his work, not ours. No matter how well I get the gospel presentation down, no matter how well I know my apologetics, no, how, no matter how well or how articulate I sound, that is not what saves anybody. only thing that will save someone is God does a work in their heart. Even your friendship evangelism, I believe those are all good things. Apologetics, friendship evangelism, all of those things are good things. But until God opens their heart, until God makes them willing, until God does that work first, they will not come. So Christ did not die in vain. Understand this. Christ did not die in vain. He will have a bride. He will have a church. It's not up to you and I. It's up to Him. He will do it. It's not a work of man. Like I said last week, it's not a work. It's it's, It's a work of God. All the Father has given to Him will come to Him. And it's pretty incredible that he can get us all together, isn't it? It's pretty incredible that he can, have, he can unite us. That's what he says in that verse. He can unite us into one flock. I mean, sometimes people think there's going to be a Baptist group in, in, in heaven and a Presbyterian group in heaven and, a, you know, all these different groups in heaven. No, he's going to unite us into one flock. If you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and you belong to him, You're going to be in heaven with people from every nation and every tribe. I love the way Boyce put it in his commentary. I think I have time to read this. 
Here it is. He says, this is only possible, this is the only possible unity of men on this earth. Nothing we ever do will abolish distinctions between nations. There will always be nations. Nothing will ever abolish denominations as far as I can see. But in spite of these things, in spite of race, nations, and denominations, there can be a real and visible unity for those who acknowledge the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Shepherd. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his volume on Ephesians, we are all equally sinners. We are all equally helpless. We have all come to one and the same Savior. We have the same salvation. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Father. We even have the same trials. And finally, we are all marching and going together to the same eternal home. Amen. It's because we have a good shepherd doing that. We have a good shepherd that can do that. You can't make that kind of unity. I can't make that kind of unity. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Only He can make that happen. He tore down the divide between Jew and Gentile. That was shocking in this culture to even think Gentiles could ever go to heaven among the Jews. And Jesus says, I go to that fold and pull them out, and I go to this fold and pull them out, and I unite them. And it happens not because, not because it was their willingness to do it. It's because I made them willing to do it. I, I must bring them And they will come, and they will unite in one flock. God, thank you for our time. Thank you for the opportunity to come to this table this morning. Thank you, Father, so much for your grace. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.